0: Good morning, good morning,
1: morning.
0: thank you, thank you Susie, thank you Bridget, welcome, good morning and welcome to the 2016-2017 academic year. Initial pediatric grand rounds for our 2016 2017 series. Welcome back from the thank you, Dr. Gloa, for the applause. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. Um, A couple of uh, reminders. One is uh, on your way out or on your way in, hopefully, you picked up a safety first. Safety Behaviors for Error Prevention Reminder Card for your ID tag, which reminds us of communicating clearly, practicing with a questioning attitude, and making a personal commitment to safety. So those are out on the door uh, on, the, on the table on your, on your way out. Uh, so hopefully you will see and receive those. As we start Grand Rounds, a, a reminder to uh, leave your computers in your office or in your bag. If you are impelled to multitask or compelled to multitask, we do stream these Grand Rounds, and so you can watch them in the privacy of your home or office while you're doing work, but otherwise attention to our speakers is is well appreciated. And we have uh, next week uh, Dr. Michael Kester from Brown University's Hasbro Children's Hospital on the best and brightest in pediatric hospital of medicine of late. I, um, I have to note that it's also it's fall, so it's also service club season, and I was pleased last night uh, to be at the Fireside Inn as not one but two members of CHAD were honored for 40 years with a 40-year pins, back-to-back back actually in the, in the um, program book. So in attendance last night were Barbara Dunbar. And Dion Forcier, from the I, both from the I C N receiving 40 year pins. So I don't see the I C N here tonight, and not in attendance, but right in front of them. So all three listed back to back to back is uh, Laura Cogswell also from the I C N. So over a century, over a century of service. And we had 450 plus, close to 500, including our friends from the anatology in the room last night. So. Um, All good things. Dr. Robert Zarr kicks off our series this year. Um, uh, he joins us from Washington. He is a board-certified pediatrician. He joins us as president of the Physicians for National Health Plan, but we are most pleased because he is actually a certified pediatrician, as uh, one of us, uh, at Unity Healthcare in Washington, D.C., where he cares for a low-income and immigrant population. He is past president of the District of Columbia's American Academy of Pediatrics chapter, holding adjunct professorships at Children's National Medical Center, George Washington University in Georgetown. He is a physician champion of DC Park Rx, a community health initiative to prescribe nature to patients and families, encouraging time in one of 350 parks and green spaces in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you'll have a chance to explore some of our green space up here, but, but our own Dr. Gene Coffey is actually working with Dr. Zahra in a presentation at the American Public Health Association on this program. So hopefully you'll meet right after this. I know that Gene came in. Gene, where... There she is, Dr. Coffey. Dr. Czar is fluent and literate in Spanish, worked in the U.S. and abroad with Spanish-speaking populations, and he's very active in Washington, D.C., in quality improvement initiatives including asthma management, injury prevention, literacy promotion, breastfeeding awareness, youth advocacy, tuberculosis prevention, and compliance with early and periodic periodic screening diagnostic and treatment standards. Sounds like a pediatrician, right? he received his medical degree from Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, completing his pediatric residency there, also at Texas Children's Hospital. His master's degree in public health, specializing in international health, from the United University of Texas School of Public Health. I was going to talk about the United States healthcare system today. Welcome, Doctor Zarr.
1: Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, And I I realized um, a couple weeks ago that this is your first... uh, Can you make sure that your microphone is on, that we don't hear it right now?
0: Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Now? Not much better, thank you. Now I can definitely hear myself too, okay. Anyway, so thanks for having me. Um, it is true, I am a practicing pediatrician. I work five days a week. I'm missing, I had to rearrange my patients today. In order to be here, I saw patients yesterday morning um, and was very uh, uh, kindly welcomed uh, in uh, Don and Pat's house. I'm not sure, if Don and Pat, are they here in the audience? Yeah, they're right there. Um, family physicians uh, here in New Hampshire. Um, so I'm going to try to do uh, three things. I'm going to try to um, first give you an idea of, of where the, the, sort of the, uh, the U.S. compares uh, internationally um, to other countries in terms of, of health outcomes, in terms of how we spend our money, et cetera. Um, and then a little bit about cost, um, this comes up all the time, and I think it 's something that uh, we can't we can 't shy away from being physicians anymore, uh, even when I was a resident. Uh, you know cost is always brought up during even during morning rounds um, and then the last is um, that uh, I want to just go through the basics about really what it means when we say single payer, even just those two words. Um, and as you can tell, I'm, you know, I love single payer. Um, and it is true, I am the national president. So if there's any disclosures to make, um, I do serve. Uh, uh, as a national president, this is my the end of my second year uh, doing that. It's a volunteer uh, position, um, and so I, I don't come to you with any kind of, of uh, financial incentive or otherwise. I just am very passionate about um, about uh, being able to find a way to be able to provide everybody in the country with uh, you know lifetime quality uh, you know accessible health care without bankrupting us. So, I guess the first question I put to you is: you know, are we in fact, do we in fact have the best healthcare system in the world? This audience is a pretty sophisticated audience, and I don't think that you would jump to any conclusions. But just to kind of review a little bit of some facts here. if you look at the um, total uninsured, um, this gives you a, a a little bit of a, a spectrum from 1940 to 2025. So f- some predictions. Um, I remember in 2008, 2009, um, there was a, a lot of talk about um, universal health care. Again, um, do you all remember that? Yeah. Um, do we have universal health care? No. So we're still at, at at the at the at the full implementation of of. I shouldn't say full implementation, but because it really wasn't fully implemented, but the Affordable Care Act. Um, But as far as we got with it, we still left uh, with at least about 27 million Americans without health insurance. (laughs) And you can see in 1965, um, we passed legislation uh, that established Medicare and Medicaid, and that's that that arrow that pushes down there. Um, And those are two programs that I think are still very cherished, and we can talk a little more detail with that, you know, how those programs have evolved since 1965 as well. Um, this is one of those, for me, I hope, for you, a take-home slide, take-home message. Um, I'm going to walk around a little bit. Um, my other hat is my park prescription hat. So I like to walk a lot. Um, so the yellow here gives you an idea of the public spending and uh, health expenditures. And you can see the total will take us down. We're, we're nearly $10,000 per capita, so we're, we're by far One of the things that we're really, really good at, or the best at in the world, um, more than anybody else, is spending money. We really know how to to spend money, to waste money. Um, And if you compare, what I find most interesting is you look at all the countries except Switzerland, the public spending alone is more than the total spending in every other country listed. So oftentimes you hear, one of the myths you hear is that um, we're not, you know, we, we can't afford health insurance for every American. and and I would just say focus on this slide of any other slide in terms of cost, well, we're already paying for it. We're already paying enough money to give every single person in this country access to health care through health insurance, except we're just not getting it. Um, You know, over the last 35 years, there has been a tiny growth in physicians. That's the yellow. And what you see on top of that is the growth in managers. Um, and, and, and part of that really is, is not uh, avoidable for hospitals, for practices, um, for people who are trying to provide a service, trying to help people by seeing patients, but are trying to get paid. And so there is an enormous bureaucracy out there. There's many, many insurance companies. They're kind of whittling down and being a monopoly these days. But but still, there's a number of different systems in which we send a bill. And it's very complicated how you get paid. And so that's that huge blue area is how do you get paid for that service that you just delivered, for that well child visit, for the MRI, for the things that you do every day, for the counseling, how do you get paid? And that's the blue. So we spend a lot of money on trying to figure out how to actually get paid. And on the other end of that, the insurance industry is there to figure out ways in which to not pay you. So the wanting to get paid and the not wanting to pay you is all that blue. So we certainly don't fare the best in life expectancy. I'm gonna go through this kind of quickly, and these slides are available to you, and I think this presentation, as you said, is is being taped. Um, So we don't fare, we don't live the longest in this country. Um, We do not have the lowest child um, poverty rate. Um, I gave a talk at Grand Rounds, to my alma mater, Baylor, at Texas Children's last year. Um, and I pointed this out, and you know, a little bit to, to, to my own embarrassment, because Texas has one of the highest, in terms of our states, one of the highest rates of child poverty. Um, and you, know, you look at other countries on there, like Denmark and Finland, and you can see that there is a, a slightly different emphasis on children than we have here. Um, we certainly don't fare the best in terms of infant mortality. Um, and if you come to DC, uh, and you come towards 7 and 8, you go east of the Anacostia, um, and a lot of parts of D.C., you know, we have infant mortality in the upwards of 13 or 14 um, per 1,000 live births. Um, it's an unstable ratio. We have a population of 600,000, so we're not talking about a huge denominator. But nevertheless, we have a really big problem with this still. Infant mortality, we certainly don't fare the best. Um, some will say another myth that, oh, well, you know, People's behavior You know, they, they, they drink, they smoke, and so they're killing themselves. And that's where all the cost is going. Well, if you look at populations once again, you can see that the percent of the population, and this one is over 15 who smoke, doesn't put us at the top of the list, believe it or not. Some will say, oh, it's because we have an elderly population, and they're very costly to take care of. So once again, you look at the numbers again, you say, hmm, how do we fare in terms of our percent of our population over the age 64? Once again, we don't have the highest percentage in that age category. Some will say, well, we keep patients really long in the hospitals, and, and that gets a lot of money being in the hospital. Once again, not true. If you look at the average days, inpatient days per capita, you see that we're actually one of the lower ones. Some will say, oh, well, we, you know, people overuse the system. They go to their doctor way too much. That's a big problem here. Um, well, actually, it's not. Um, and there's an outlier in terms of physician visits. And you can see, like, Japan has nearly 13 visits a year. Um, there was a documentary, I think, called Sick Around the World and where there were some interviews done in, in Japan. And, and I was interested because I was like, that's a lot of visits a year. That's more than one a month, right? Um, and then I thought about it and like, well, no, it isn't. I bring patients back once a month. I bring kids back if they're you know, asthmatics or they're obese or you know, they have so many. Now I put you know, chronic disease management, CDM, as my follow-up because I have kids with, I'm sure you do too, with five, six, seven, eight problems on their problem list. And they do need to see me once a month. Um, and maybe a quick visit. It may be, you know, blood pressure, BMI type of visit. Maybe to make sure that they can take their asthma medications appropriately, the technique is appropriate, environmental assessment. Maybe a quick visit, but it's still a visit. And I find, and I'm sure you find the same thing, that if you don't see somebody for a long time, right, what happens in that year? This is just like classic. If they're obese, they come back next year and they weigh how much more? Anybody? About 20 pounds more. That's a classic, right? Gaining 20 pounds over one year. And I notice the ones who see me once a month, once every two months, once every two and a half months, I squeeze in my schedule, much less likely to do that. Just having that conversation. So a lot of those visits in Japan, and a lot of my own visits, actually, they're quick visits. But it's what oftentimes some people actually need. Um, Some will say, well, maybe we have too many nurses. That's where all the money is going. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: Clearly not the case. I talked about we're really good about spending money. We're also really good about um, asking um, patients to have a lot of out-of-pocket expenses. Um, so um, last night at dinner, you know, I was talking about my own knee um, because I had a ruptured Baker's cyst. And I have good insurance right, um, through the federal government, through my wife's plan. And I ended up with out-of-pocket payments, uh, every, all instead probably about $1,000. Well, I can afford that, but my patients can't. Um, and a lot of people simply cannot afford these kinds of copays and deductibles, and so they just forego the care. You know, and the thing I didn't want to have to worry about cost when I couldn't walk, when I was home for a whole week, I did not have to want to worry about how much was it going to cost me to get the MRI, what was the co- the, co- the copay and all this stuff. I just got it. Right? When you're sick, do you want to worry about that? When your child has leukemia? Do you really want to worry whether you can afford that treatment? When I left yesterday, my colleague next to me, a medped, and I think the medpeds are awesome because they're, they're like two of me. <laughs> um, and he said, "Tell them when you go tomorrow that I just saw a patient today, which was yesterday, uh, with stage four colon cancer um, and no insurance. What am I going to do?" In terms of cost, once again, we have a very high insurance overhead. I mentioned that earlier. So, uh, and and really, the the, the main reason for this is is that you know we have all these different systems, and you have in one state several managed care organizations, for-profit Medicaid companies, Um, and this you multiply that times fifty, and then we have Medicare. And Medicare, now we have a third of Medicare recipients are on the Medicare Advantage plan, which is a private plan of Medicare. And then we have all these third-party payers, like the Aetnas and the Cygnus and the Uniteds, And you add all that together, and there's a lot of overhead. And you compare that, for example, to Medicare, traditional Medicare, where we still have about 67% of Americans on, uh, who are eligible for Medicare on Medicare, and the overhead is about 3% versus an overhead of about 18%. So, sometimes up to 20% actually for some insurance companies. So, you know, it it, it is not rocket science to look at how efficiently we can run a health insurance company by looking at Medicare and how inefficiently we can look at how to run an insurance company, which is through the private payers. Um, The hospital administration cost is shocking to me, Um, it's upwards of 25% of the um, hospital's budget now goes to administration, just trying to get paid for the services they provide. Um, and you compare that to other countries around the world and you see that it's a significantly lower number. It's been rising. Um, may not look like much to you, 0.98, 1.03, up to 1.5, but this is GDP. <laughs> Quick look at Canada. Uh, I know that uh, one of your borders is shared with Canada. I was recently in Canada, in Montreal. Um, and Canadian system is not a perfect system. Um, but, and you know, sometimes you hear a lot of criticism about Canada. There's weights. Um, you hear about the weights. Anybody hear about the weights in Canada? What are the weights for? You all know? Elective surgery. To get elective things done, right? So maybe like a a knee replacement, cataract, um, surgery. Things like that that are important. Um, But we don't get a ton of data or stories about people with heart attacks being turned away uh, or with strokes um, or people with Baker's cysts that ruptured who couldn't walk for a week. Um, So people get care. Um, I recently went to Canada for a conference. It was the Ontario... Association of Health Centers, I think it was called. And it was amazing to me to be in a conference where there's just so much talk about social determinants of health. It's Canada, right? Social determinants of health and all these things that are like so public health. Um, And part of the trip was to a community health center in Toronto. And I work at a community health center in DC. And I was curious to see what it looked like. And it looked very much the same. And where I work, it's a lot of Spanish you hear, and Amharic, and French, and Arabic, all these different languages. Wow, same thing in Toronto. This is amazing to me. Like, it was very, very similar. We just went through a renovation a couple of years ago. They went through a renovation a couple of years ago. Um, you know, so I was like, what's the difference? So I went, and I kind of pulled away from the tour a little bit, and I found a physician to talk to. And I was like, what's it like working here? You know, tell me, tell me what it's really like. And he said, you know, tell me how many years he would worked there, this and that. And I said, how many patients do you see a day? Just curious on your schedule. Anybody? It's a community health center. For For 13, about 13 a day, he said to me. I'm thinking, I see I have 13 and a half a day in a session. Um, you know, uh, so it was interesting. And I said, I had curiosity here. How much time do you spend on billing every day? <laughs> and, you know, the typical Canadian way, kind of crinked his eyebrows thing. What? <laughs> billing? I don't do billing. So here you have a community health c- I mean he's being on- serious. They don't do billing. So they are a budgeted health center and they receive a budget. Wow, what a novel idea. Hmm. Dartmouth Hitchcock could receive a budget to operate. So they receive a budget to operate by the um, province. The provincial budget. And they went so far the, the the Health Minister of Ontario, at least at the time I was there a social demographer um, wanted to see you know who is doing a good job providing care and actually did looked at they looked at data hard data to see whether outcomes health outcomes for community health centers were as good or better or worse than the private practice groups who were also being paid for the provide services they provide in the same province and now Mind you, the patients you're seeing at a community health center in Toronto are not that healthy Um, as the other population. um, They're difficult to serve, speak many languages, a lot of cultural barriers, very similar to what I do. Um, Yet their outcomes are still better. And actually the money, more money got diverted into the health centers... Than than they were than they were before because they looked at the data and they said, "Wow, you're doing an amazingly good job with the budget. We're going to give you more money." Um, very kind of common sense to me, but apparently we've lost a lot of common sense here. Um, the dollar. A comparison between Canada and the U.S. obviously fluctuates. Um, but just in case you're wondering, no way in hell am I going to work in Canada because I'm not going to make. I want to make more money here. But just, just as a, a little reminder to you that even with the adjustment, the fluctuations, um, pediatricians actually fare quite well. Um, so, despite this one another myth that doctors make no money uh, working in England and Scotland and Japan and Canada, um, simply not true. Um, if you know anybody who works there, you can ask them it 's funny, I give another set of slides when I do my part prescription talks and I, and I, I tell them this is not a filler. <laughs> <laughs> this slide is reducing your blood pressure and your stress hormones right now, um, and maybe you need that too. I think I need that I certainly every day I need this um, so um I'm going to kind of keep going here. I want to make sure we have time for questions. So the Affordable Care Act, uh, I want to go through this a little, because this is sort of what we're dealing with now, right? I mean, 2010, uh, this was passed into law. And sometimes people have a, little, a few questions about it. I'm not sure what it is still. Um, and really kind of what, what were some of the positives about the Affordable Care Act? So, ten essential benefits, um, but there's no one standard benefit package. Um, and eliminated copay. So I know when I take my kid for his well child, I don't receive. I don't. They're not asking me for a copay anymore for the well child stuff. Um, but it's only on preventative services. Um, and there was a important provision in there to limit overhead um, to 20. percent uh, That's a lot of overhead. <laughs> So, um, but that's what it is in, in the bill um, versus like a 3% overhead, you know, for Medicare. Um, and there's really no regulation of premiums, deductibles, and copays. And there's no out of pocket caps. So, what are we left with? I want to skip to the. I want to show you what we're left with, if I can get there. We're left with this, which is very interesting to me. Um, and this is. What happened with ACA, right? We don't have universal care. And we have a tiered system. So we have bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. So rather than saying, I don't care if you're sick, I don't care if you're healthy, I don't care if you're a baby, I don't care if you are 102 years old, you're going to have a standard benefit of packages. Rather than doing that, we're going to say, choose, you can choose and there's your, your cost, you pay that, and this is what's, what the insurance is gonna pay. So we still have a very much a tiered system, right? Um, which was not kind of what I was thinking when we were talking about universal healthcare. So the impact on the uninsured, is something to talk about, right? We went from 46 million to 33 million um, over the span of four years. I mentioned earlier that we'll be down to about 27 million, which is a good thing. Right. We have expansion of Medicaid, but not in all 50 states. Right? Um, thanks to New Hampshire, we're one of the states where you have Medicaid expansion. Um, it's a good thing that we have expanded that. That's really solid access to care that people didn't have before. Um, And then there's some individual coverage that was uh, purchased through these exchanges. Many states chose not to establish an exchange, an insurance exchange to buy insurance. And so they could use um, the, uh, there was actually a Supreme Court decision on this over the summer. Uh, I think it was last year, last summer it was, um, to allow individuals living in states whose states did not create a state exchange to use the HHS.gov um, to buy their to buy their insurance that way, um, but you probably heard recently that uh, Humana, I believe it was Humana, um, made a strong statement um, and a decision to pull out of the exchange um, world. So they are decreasing the number of exchanges where people can buy insurance, um, and the main reason for that is that. Uh, and it's logical for them, and it's actually a good business plan for them. Is that people who are um, looking, enough people who are looking to buy insurance on the exchanges are sick. And when you're sick, you um, cost money to the insurance company. So they lose profits. Their, their profit margin goes down. Um, in terms of children, a significant decrease 7.5 million to 4.8 million during this span of time. Um, The impact on the underinsured. What's that mean, an underinsured person? Raise your hand if you know anybody in in your lifetime, anybody who has been uninsured. Anybody? Raise your hand if you know anybody who's been underinsured. If you add up all these numbers, right? 31 million underinsured, another 27 million uninsured. Do the math. What is that? About 60? Less than 60 million? A population of 300 million? Wow. So even with the ACA, we're still looking at what is that? one in five, six Americans still today, with all this hoopla don't have access, the kind of access they should have. A um, Recent study looked at the number of people who have insurance between the ages of 18 and 64, because if you're 65, you generally qualify for Medicare. Um, and 44 um, percent you know, went without a, a doctor's visit, um, a medical test or prescription because of cost. And 51% had problems paying their bills. So still today, the number one cause of bankruptcy, anybody? Medical medical, medical bankruptcy. Can't pay the bills. Um, anybody know anybody who's lost a home because they can't pay their bills? <laughs> you know, in sick around the world, they were in. Uh, he was in Switzerland, um, talking to the health minister, and he raised this question about you know medical bankruptcy. You know, how many people in Switzerland um, have to claim medical bankruptcy? And once again, it was a Canadian or the Switzerland sort of scraping of the eyebrow, like, what? <laughs> we don't have that here. <clears throat> so. In we're going the 2010, all these all this talk about you know cost control. We're going to have cost control um, in the ACA, and these were a lot of the things that were discussed. Right now, you know, being somewhat of a scientist, I'm not a researcher, but you know, I I like to think that I look at data to try to make decisions. How many of these um, cost control provisions were proven? How many of these were proven to work before? We went to the media and went to the public and said, we're going to save billions of dollars. How many of these? Anybody? Oh, are there more coming? (laughs) No, this is actually a blank slide because none of them were proven. Ah, the sound of the beepers. Those still exist? (laughs) They don't just call your cell phones? So... Anyway, so the point is, is that you know, we tra- I showed you the bronze, the silver, the gold, the platinum. This is just give you an idea you know, in, the, in New York State you know, what it, what it means to have the bronze plan. Right? Out-of-pocket maximum of $12,700. Now, the kind of person buying this in the first place, do you think they have $12,700 to fork out for out-of-pocket? I know my patients don't. So this is the overhead. Um, in insurance, um, $266 billion. And sometimes these numbers, they just, they're so overwhelming and they start to mean nothing to many people they just see them too much. But um, try to think about, every time you see these slides, this I do it anyway, I try to think about patients I'm serving, um, what I do in my day-to-day job and how it could be better. Um, just the other day I saw um, a brother and a sister. Um, she weighs 313 pounds and he weighs 212 pounds. Hadn't seen them in a year. And why not insurance. no insurance? Now, mind you, I work at a place of last resort. You, you can come to me and we're not gonna go to the credit agency if you can't pay your bill. We actually, the federal government requires us to ask, right, to ask every patient for their ability to pay. We're, we That's not a choice, we have to ask that question. But we're not a you know, for-profit hospital system, we're not going after their you know, bank accounts to get paid. But still, right, it's a barrier, and the patient doesn't have, family doesn't have that insurance card, and they're less likely to come. You know, I've seen kids who go, you know, a year without getting immunizations. Jeez, a year in a kid's life is like 10 years in an adult life, right? I mean, it's it's massive things can happen in that year. So just to summarize for ACA, um, ACA, a lot of good things happened, right? I mean, we've got fewer uninsured, Um, We have uh, fewer out-of-pockets, although it's still substantial. Um, But at the end of the day, we are still relying on private insurance. Private insurance, because we have private Medicaid now. Private insurance, because we have private Medicare now. Um, Private insurance, because we have these exchanges. And that increases a lot of overhead. So we made it more complicated now in terms of trying to get paid and, of course, trying not to pay you. Um, We have expansion of Medicaid But not to all the states. We still have uninsured, we have uninsured, which adds up to about one in six Americans. Um, And frankly, healthcare is still unaffordable to millions. And I know you know that, because I know that. There's more bureaucracy, there's more paperwork, simply because there's more insurance now. Right? It's harder to get your job done. Um, And at the end of the day, it increased cost to all of us. Okay. It's getting better, I promise. This is actually were taken by a fellow um, single payer physician activist in California. She takes marvelous photos. So where is public opinion with this? Um, this is an old slide, and I put it up here on purpose because it says 2006. Not much has changed. Um, so if you ask if you ask Americans in general, you know. Would you, you know, prefer your current health insurance system, what your insurance call right now, or rather um, a universal coverage program like Medicare that is government-run even, there's a question, government-run, which is not what we're talking about today, and financed by te- taxpayers? You know, We're not talking about a health care system that is owned and operated by the government. We're talking about a generally private system of providing care but a public system of financing it. And you can see that the majority of Americans support it. Um, the question was asked um, for, about you know, those to those who opposed um, ACA um, and it mo- mo- more, most interesting to me was not the 45 in favor, but those who opposed it, the reason why they opposed it was that it didn't go far enough. So, just you know, a little bit you know beneath the lines, you know below the surface. Like, what is it? What is in people's um, thoughts? If you ask a little bit deeper, um, in case you're wondering about um, your own. Uh, our own specialty. Um, there was a study by Carol and, and Ackerman. I know uh, Aaron, Carol, um, talked to him about the study. Um, this was done in 2002, I think in 2007, yeah. And so it was a survey um, of thousands of physicians across the country, 13 specialties. All the specialties, um, with the exception of these bottom three, um, you know, supported establishing uh, legislation to have a national health insurance. Um, And then for us, in terms of general pediatrics and and specialty pediatrics, I mean, you know, it's not just a majority, but a vast majority. Um, So if you're wondering about your own profession, our own profession, um, a lot of support for this. Um, And just to mention to you, for those of you, uh, you know, about um, the Academy of Pediatrics, um, there's this incredible... Uh, event that happens every every year called the ALF, the Annual Leadership Forum and it's where the presidents and vice presidents of the chapters get together the, um, the chairs of the committee sections and councils get together and they vote on these uh, resolutions and one that was uh, voted on and passed uh, last year was this one here. It was the result that the Academy, through its Committee on Child Health Financing, examined a report on financing universal health care by means of a single nonprofit public fund. So even within the Academy, even within the leadership of the Academy, um, there is a growing interest in, in at least looking at, you know, looking at, uh, at the effects of single payer, establishing single payer on our profession. That guy in the, the guy, little guy in the green is my kid. They're wondering. This is a Greenbelt National Park, just about maybe 20 miles from DC. So, what is single payer? Um, It's actually kind of simple, and I I don't know. I find that with every decade that goes by for me, I'm I'm looking for simple answers to complicated questions. (laughs) Um, So, uh, the other day I saw a uh, a uh, short, uh, stout. Uh, guy and and uh, he's been gaining weight and and I said tell me what does your dad do and he said he's a, you know, he works in construction and I was like is he is he strong you know and he goes yeah he's strong and I said well, that's good um, and I was like you know um, I said I said um, you like you're probably like your dad you know and I said are trees strong and he goes yeah trees are strong they have roots you know they're they're well rooted big trunks you know and I said what does a tree need to grow and he thought about it for a little bit. He was kind of puzzled. And I said, there's two things a tree needs, right? It needs sun and it needs water. You also need sun and water. Go outside, play. I'm going to show you how to do that. And drink water. And he was just like, yes,
0: I'm
1: going to do that. Um, I'm boiling down obesity to two things, which is not fair. Um, but anyway, so you know, what is single payer? Well, you know, one of it is, is this principle of that health care is a human right right? And if you're not there yet, we've got to get you there. Um, but I think in this crowd, probably most everybody would agree that it should be a human right. And the other one is, is autonomy, you know, the choice to, to go where you want to go, right? And if I pull out my, my insurance card, wherever it is, um, you know, I, I know that I have very limited coverage. I can't just go anywhere. I can't go to any hospital. I can't go to any doctor. I can't go to any pharmacy. I can't just go anywhere I want to get the care, Right? So that's not freedom. I don't have freedom. I don't have autonomy to go where I want to go. We want that for you. Right? We want that for you as a physician or a future physician. We want that for you as a patient. Right? Um, I don't see patients sometimes because they can't come to my clinic for some reason. We maybe don't accept that insurance. Right? Um, we take Maryland and DC Medicaid. We don't take Virginia Medicaid. So I live in DC, right? It's like seven, seven miles. Um, is that fair, as soon as they go across the border? So I lose patients every day, I hope not because they hate me, um, you know, because they move one mile. Does that make any sense to you? Doesn't to me, and I'm tired of it. Um, the third is there's no role for um, making enormous profit, fortunes, off of our patients. A tricky one for some people like, well, I, you know, I work hard every day and I go to the hospital every day and I'm intubating. You know, and I, I want to get paid for what I do and I want you to. But when we're looking at, let's say, a salary of a Aetna CEO or a Cigna CEO of twenty eight million dollars. Is that right? You know, while at the same time, we have twenty seven million uninsured and thirty one underinsured and kids gaining 20 pounds in one year because they don't see their doctor, their pediatrician. And the last is about democracy, that you know, if you still believe in democracy, and I happen to still believe in it, um, that the overall policy should be set by us, you know? not in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in a closed-door boardroom for insurance companies. Right? At the end of the day, if the insurance company tells you not going to cover that MRI, what are you going to do about it? Honestly, go home and cry? Pretty much. Right. I mean, the other day I had a kid with an anaphylactic um, allergy to peanuts. I'm sure you've never seen that before, right? And I, I just could not, but this before I knew what was happening Right. Uh, with the company that has that now jacked up the rates of, of epinephrine to 600 and now 300. I guess you can get it at 300. And my kid has Medicaid. He has Medicaid. How could he not have his EpiPen? I said, I'm getting on the phone right now. I'm going to waste 45 minutes of my time. I'm going to make my next two patients wait, just so I can see what it feels like again. Um, And I got on the phone, and I went from one person. This is a Medicaid-managed care organization. And I went from person to person to person to person. Raise your hand. That's never happened to you before. (laughs) And at the end of 45 minutes, I still didn't have an answer. And I said to him, I don't know what to tell you, but your kid could die. I don't know what to tell you. I will keep trying. But as you can see, I just tried for 45 minutes. I had him, you know, I'm hold. I'm, I'm trying to do my work, you know, charting and talking to him while, while I'm on hold. But every time someone got on, I stopped what I was doing and talked to them. And I'm not mad at the person on the phone. They're not responsible for this. But that CEO who's making $28 million is. Like, it's just not right that I can't do my job. So if you think that we can battle with these insurance companies and give us better rates, I'm, 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 I'm done with that. I, I, it's not working. For me, it's not working. So, comprehensive care quality, choice, and affordability, we've talked about those. Um, you know, what does single payer include? Well, we've talked about these as well, right? Automatic enrollment, the day you're born, you get it, to the day you die. Free choice, you don't have to have limited networks. Um, Hospitals and doctors are independent, and they are not owned by the government. Um, There's a public agency, i.e., the government. Um, And it could be even that, it could be that once we get national health insurance, and we will get it eventually, that, yeah, we might rely on the private sector to do the billing. That's, That's okay. That's fine. It's actually what happens now with Medicare, right? There's not, like, some big, huge Medicare office where all the bills are sent to, right? Even in Canada, provinces do it on a provincial level. Um, And it's financed through tax, right? You make $10 billion a year, guess what? You're going to pay a little more. You're my patients, you're probably going to pay very little or nothing. So a recent study came out and said, well, what would this look like, the financing, Right. It wasn't done by the Congressional Budget Office, which we've asked them many years to do it. But obviously, for political reasons, they're not going to look at, at a single payer bill and, and give us the, the breakdown of what that's going to be cost wise. But there are other studies that looked at it. And um, Gerald Freeman is one of them. And at the end of the day, when we have national health insurance, the numbers have been crunched. And about 95% of Americans will pay what they pay now or less in a national health insurance system but get so much more. So if you can think about all those copays and deductibles and all the cost sharing you pay now, plus your premiums, plus all of the lack of coverage you get because you can't go anywhere, it's a pretty good deal, even for us. So what does it cover? It means every American for all lifetime medically necessary services, right, and I put that in I don't know with like a twenty-eight or thirty-two point um, because it means everything, right? Everything that's essential, right? So there are some things that aren't essential. Let's say you have a heart attack and you end up in the hospital, okay, or a stroke. I've seen a kid with a stroke. You've seen a kid with a stroke before? Anybody? Yeah, would, my own patient had a stroke, um, and you don't need a private room. You don't have active TB, right? But you really want a private room. And there is one. You could pay for that. That's extra, right? But everything else is not, and it's covered. So, medically necessary services, to give you an idea what that looks like, makes you wonder why maybe those subspecialties, some of those medical subspecialties or surgical subspecialties like plastic surgery, right? Oh, well, my brother in law is a plastic surgeon, and he, you know, he takes uh, you know, toes and puts them on, on, on the hand if someone loses their finger. I mean, essential surgeries, that give them motility once again, full motility of their hand. Those are medically necessary procedures. But aesthetics, he does aesthetics too. That's not going to be covered in general, in general. Drugs are covered. You know, one of the things that happened in Canada in 1965, and it, for, for those of us, I, I haven't been around that long, but for those of you who have been around, you know, since 1965, and you think back to that time, you know, the role of medications in medicine 1965, it was a lot different than it is now, right? A lot of what the adult doctors do, and now, unfortunately, a lot of what our pediat- us pediatricians do is manage medicines. Kid comes in, you refill their meds, a lot of medications. Wasn't like that in 1965. And so the thinking was that there didn't necessarily even need to be a drug benefit plan, right? Medicare didn't have one here, and Canadian Medicare also didn't have one. That would be part of We know now that's a central part of our plans. It would need to be covered. Um, And not only that, but in every other developed country in the world, the government has a very heavy hand in negotiating the price of those drugs, except US. We had that opportunity, a window of opportunity with Medicare Part D, but it got taken away in the last minute. Um, And the member of Congress, blanking on his name, who was behind this. this Medicare Part D, getting this thing passed and taking out the the opportunity for the government to actually negotiate the prices down for seniors, I think now is working for pharma, I believe. I'm not being facetious, I think think it really is. Um, So um, it would cover all drugs and supplies. Um, three options for payment. For those who are students, you may not be into this quite yet, but soon you're going to have to wonder, like, how am I going to get paid? right? Um, and one simple way is simply through fee-for-service. Another is through a salary, salary position. And another is through a salary position, but um, with, with capitation payments. These are all well-known ways to get paid. There's no, there's no rocket science in this, and all of them work. There's plus and minuses to every one of them. Um, and a little summary, once again, for you um, about the comparison between the Affordable Care Act and single payer, um, just to summarize real quick here, yes, 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 for single payer, no, 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 for the Affordable Care Act. You can read the details, it's all in there for you. Um, it's, once again, you know, I'm, I'm just telling you, you know, what's in there. I've already disclosed that I'm the president for Physicians for a National Health Program, so my ulterior motive is to help our patients. Um, and in case you're wondering, well, there's no bill in Congress. This is just a nonsense. You're talk- I mean, this is, it's great, but we're never going to get there. We've had a bill in Congress for 10 years, by the way. So House Resolution 676. You know, the number of, 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 uh, of supporters, uh, people who've endorsed this bill in Congress, it's varied year to year, session to session. Um, and I forgot to look up the exact number before I gave this talk, but I think we're somewhere in the 60s right now. If I'm not, if I'm not, so even with ACA, even with the Affordable Care Act, we still have a sizable group, in my opinion, who still support it, who still support establishing single-payer national health insurance, even in Congress. If you want to read it, well, let me ask you this: How many pages is the ACA? Anybody know? It's thousands of pages, actually. Yeah, um, it's written that way for a reason. It's also it was also written largely by a former insurance company executive. But this bill um, you know, wasn't written by Physicians for a National Health Program, but I can tell you there was a lot of conversation um, to help them write this bill in a way that resembles what I've just proposed to you today. Um, and it's how many pages long? So eleven. Wow, someone's actually reading my slide. Um, It's eleven. I read it. I mean, I think you have time for eleven pages, right? I mean, I think most journal articles these days are somewhere in that range still. Um, And I put the website if you want if you want to pull it up yourself. So, how do we know it can be done? Well, essentially, every other rich country in the world has done something like this. You know, if you want to look at, if you really want to go and look and read about, like, what's the purest system of single payer in the country, um, I would say. It's a toss-up between Canada, Scotland, and Taiwan. Those are the three I would go to if you really want to know, like, where where is the most purest example of what I'm talking about. I'm not a purist. I'm not the enemy of good. I see patients like you every day. Medicaid is what keeps us working every day, my salary, okay? But I'm trying to think in the future here, a few years down, right, We've got to do something. It's, it is imploding in front of us. Um, and it's this sort of festering sore that's not going away, um, even with the changes since 2010. Um, all of these countries spend less than we do. You remember that slide, right? All of them spend less than we do. Ah, the sound of a peeper again. All right. Um, if you need to go, go and take care of your patient. I, mean, I used to run out. I remember running out of grand rounds. Um, and... Um, you know, m- most of these countries have better health, o- better health outcomes. They have lower death rates. Um, you know, some will say, but our, you know, our treatment for cancer is, like, one of the best in the world, if you have insurance. So if you start looking at, you know, comparing apples to apples, oranges to oranges, bananas to bananas, whatever your fruit is, you'll find that the average American, maybe it's starfruit, I don't know what you guys eat, um... But when you start really comparing and looking deeper, what you'll find is the average American does not do as well as the average. Canadian, Taiwanese, Scottish, German, French, we can go down the list, right? Um, last I remember, the World Health Organization had gave that report card for how we're doing in terms of health outcomes and, and access to care and affordability, et cetera. And we're, for industrialized nations, we're at the bottom of the list. Um, and so far, no country has ever adopted single payer um, Found it truly worse and switched entirely back. There is some experimentation going on around the world, um, to my, to my, um, you know, sadness. Um, but uh, there has been no complete, you know, re, re, uh, turning back the clock. So, um, I just wanted to point out our website, um, not because I'm promoting my organization, which I am, um, but uh, also because. There are a lot of peer-reviewed articles, research articles, that are on our website. Um, so pnhp.org, um, and we have a um, we have a membership of now over twenty thousand, mostly physicians. Uh, we have some nurses, we have uh, you know, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, who are also members. Um, we also have a very rapidly growing um, section um, of medical students and residents and fellows um, as well. And it's probably the fastest growing part of what we do now is, is our membership, anyway, is with the, with the, young, um, the, young, the younger group. Um, and I also, I hope you don't mind, Don, could you raise your hand again? Uh, two and now. <laughs> but I have Dawn's email up there. So there, there is a Physicians um, for National Program chapter uh, in almost every state, um, and there is one here in New Hampshire. We're in New Hampshire, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> almost Vermont. Um, and Dawn is the convener of that chapter. Uh, and his email is up there, and I would really, you know, request that you, you know, ask you that if you're interested, you know, you can definitely reach out to me, but, but I, I think it's almost more salient to reach out to um, physicians right here in your own backyard who are passionate about this, um, and who are organizing around this, and who are educating about this. Um, the main job of Physicians for a National Health Program is to educate physicians and medical students um, about the merits of single-payer. That's what we do. Um, we do a, a few other things, but that's really our main, that's our, you know, we are a single issue organization. So with that, I'm, I do not know how I'm doing on time. Uh, I probably went over a little bit. No, I didn't. I have five minutes. Okay. Um, I'm happy to take questions. Sorry. Thank you for saying that. Yeah.
0: So this may a rhetorical. but I didn't introduce you. <laughs> um, maybe a rhetorical question. But how quickly would this change if we had
1: election financing reform? You said campaign finance reform. Okay. Campaign, yeah. Um, it's a it's a it's a topic that's so important that on one of our past uh, annual meetings. Our, our keynote speaker was talking about campaign finance reform, and, and the answer is it—it it, does—it has to happen, right? I mean, right now we're in a situation where the um, the, the corporations um, have too many close ties. As I alluded to earlier, you know, the uh, Medicare Part D passed. Uh, which is the drug benefit plan for Medicare, it passed in its current form um, because of so much influence from the pharmaceutical industry. And it is honestly embarrassing that we have this, ro- this uh, rotating, uh, uh, what's it called, um, door, or it's a revolving door, thank you, um, between the corporate world um, and the government. I mean, they, you know, K Street, K Street in, in D.C. and Northwest is where a lot of the lobbying firms are. But they're everywhere now. I mean it's not just case street anymore um, and i I totally agree with you and so one of the things that i that I often say is you know. Partner with other organizations that are fighting other causes that are very related to what we're doing. Um, so, you know, I I think that uh, PNHP does a, a fairly good job in partnering with Public Citizen, for example, National Nurses United, um, uh, 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 Healthcare Now, a number of other organizations. We have you know monthly conference calls with them to have a strategy and to have tactics for completing our goals. Um, so, I I applaud you for saying that. It, it does need to happen. Um, but as I said earlier, I mean, I still believe there is some semblance of democracy in this country. Um, but we need to fight for it. We actually need to speak out. Um, and uh, part of that is advocating. So yeah. Yeah? How much of the cost do you think is our burden of paying for drugs? Because I hear this all the time that we're bearing the burden of the cost for drug development, which has to be borne, right, to, to, for every drug we know that comes
0: to market yeah. there are hundreds and hundreds that don't make it. So how much do you think that plays into it? And if we were to not pay what the other countries pay, how
1: close would that get us? So the question is about um, drug development and, and drug cost, uh, overall drug cost to us, and how that would reduce our overall health expenditures. Um, it is significant. I don't have the number off the top of my head, um, in part because that number, that cost, is significant, but it's still dwarfed by the costs because of the administrative waste that goes on every day in trying to get paid and trying not to pay us by and the insurance I companies. I think it's disgusting that anybody makes a profit off of sick people. So I'm all for this. Yeah. Really wonder about drug development and and, and, and for, yeah, thank you and and for those of you who may not know this, um, if you if you look at the cost structure of, of you know taking an idea about a drug and taking it all the way to you know full completion, um, the the majority of that cost over fifty percent of that cost is already bared by taxpayers through. Mostly through the NIH and all its grants that it gives to Dartmouth and Baylor and on and on and on to develop uh, drugs and vaccines, et cetera. So that cost is 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 really you're already paying for those the development of those medications. Yes, the pharmaceutical industry does burden so take some of the burden of that cost, but um, absolutely, it's something that we have to deal with. And usually, it's you know pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies are in the same breath when we talk. I have to admit my information comes
0: from the New Yorker, but according to them, their marketing budget is the same as their research and developing budget. They spend the same amount of money on ads as they do in development.
1: So there's a wonderful thank you. There's a wonderful book if you haven't read it by Marcia Angel. Um, Marcia Angel is a past editor in chief of the um, New England Journal of Medicine. I'm sure you've never heard of that journal. Um, and so she wrote a book called The Truth About the Drug Companies. And if you haven't read it, it's a great. It's actually a good read. Um, and she goes to a lot more detail um, about how tiny the budget and the staff of the FDA is, and how enormous the power of pharma is in getting what they want.
0: Dr. Rizicki, I'll give you the
1: last question.
0: You've made a compelling argument for how uh, such a system would improve or with lower cost. I think you've made a less compelling argument for uh, how that will improve health care outcomes. Great question. It probably will improve outcomes for those people who are not insured at present, but for the people who are Great question. insured or underinsured is there evidence that it would really make a
1: difference? It's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it, because it sometimes it comes up, sometimes it doesn't come up. Um, there has been some good, reason, some good data to look at that, um, and uh, what we have found, and I can pull those studies for you, is that even for us in this room, who are insured and have good insurance, our health outcomes would stay the same or go up with a system in which everybody is in and nobody out. And some of it is just common sense, right? I mean, think about ID. If somebody has TB, right, that's a communicable disease. It's a public health concern. So, despite the fact that you have health insurance, right, but you don't, you're sitting next to each other, right? You take the same metro, the same buses, your kids go to the same schools, um, you might have someone come and clean your house, right? What is that person bringing to your home? So, there's this whole public health concern and how it ties in. So, clearly, from a public health angle, If, you know, if everybody is in, everybody has access to health care, timely, comprehensive, lifetime, affordable, right, we should have, logically, better outcomes and healthier people. Now, I did have a chance to meet with the health minister, health finance minister of Taiwan. A few years ago. And he told some stories about quality. And I was, I was interested to know what he was talking about here. And he said that, so, not, so Taiwan background. Taiwan um, went to single payer, adopted single payer, I think in 1995. Um, so the, the most recent in our history to, to adopt a single payer system. And they sent this team around the world to look at all the healthcare systems. Um, they went to the US, they went to Canada, they went to all these countries. And they said, we're going to go with single payer. It makes sense. Um, and what he told me was that literally overnight, for example, they could see all of the billing that was going on through the entire country, right? And one of the things they, they kind of honed in on, one of the first things they honed in on, were all these head injuries they were seeing in uh, TBIs, in their ERs. And what they realized was looking a little deeper at the data, that the helmet use was incredibly low in their country. Well, when you have a national healthcare system and you're you're building one insurer, you can see this incredible view, bird's eye view what's happening every day. And so the government instituted a helmet program. That's a novel idea. So more people wearing helmets, they could actually watch the number of TBIs, decrease in severity and number. By the visits in the ERs. So it's just one example I'm giving you, but it would be phenomenal in this country for quality improvement, for data, for research, to have 300 million Americans on the same insurance plan. Would it not? I mean, it would be even better if we had one electronic health record. <laughs> Whoa! One button, and we could cue all—you know—query all the asthmatics and all the BMIs above, you know, 95 percent, et cetera. But imagine the world, right? And if you're wondering if this is a, a fantasy, it's not, because we do that with Medicare right now. A lot of the quality research is done through Medicare because it's one system and one payment system, with a few—you know. You know, twerks and the tweaks and the, the fact that it's been privatized. But we do that already now. So I would say, you know, um, people like, you know, Don Berwick a Pediatrician has now recently come on board and ran a campaign, uh, you know, for governor um, on single payer, you know, because he even realizes that. And he's the quality man, right? I mean, he is, if there's any one person I can think of in our field, it would be Don Berwick. And he has said repeatedly now single payer is the way to do this. Thank you all very much.
0: Thank you.